This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, this week, we are talking about studies that are at least loosely related to geriatrics. Uh, John, how are things on your end? Uh, yeah, things are going pretty good over here. Uh, getting ready to get back on clinical service, but status quo, you know, other than this whole COVID thing. How about for you? Yeah, yeah. Ditto on that one. All right, John. So we're not talking about COVID, thankfully. Uh, what do you got up for us first? Yeah. So first, uh, there's a paper called The Effects of Antiplatelet Therapy After Stroke Caused by Intracerebral Hemorrhage, Extended Follow-Up of the Restart RCT. This was by Al-Shahi Salman et al. and was published in JAMA Neurology in September 2021. Cool. What was the research question? They wanted to know what are the long-term effects of antiplatelet therapy being restarted after someone's had an ICH? Yeah, this is incredibly clinically relevant. I'm never sure what to do in this scenario, but why did this catch your eye? Yeah, I mean, same thing. Clinically, it just is very relevant. We know that a third of spontaneous ICH tends to occur in patients already taking either an antiplatelet or an anticoagulant medication. Survivors of ICH, though, often still remain at high risk for myocardial infarction for ischemic stroke because of their unique comorbidities. The RESTART trial was one of the only published randomized controlled trials to compare the effects of starting versus avoiding antiplatelet therapy after ICH. And they had sort of about a two-year window of follow-up. And after this, they did not show an increased risk in ICH when antiplatelet medications were restarted. So the investigators got some additional funding and were able to extend the follow-up for two more years to see if this effect still bore out. Yeah, yes. Extended funding. That's like a unicorn I would like to see one day. But anyway, what was the study design here? So this was a multi-center randomized control trial involving 122 hospitals in the United Kingdom. It was an open-label blinded endpoint study. Participants were over the age of 18, survived at least 24 hours after their spontaneous ICH and were on antithrombotic therapy at that time. They were randomized to restart antiplatelet medication, and that would have included one of aspirin, Plavix, clopidogrel, or dipyrimidol. No one was on dual antiplatelet therapy, uh, but if you weren't randomized to that, you were randomized to not start an antiplatelet. So there was not an actual placebo control here. It was just like a stern recommendation not to. Follow-up was done by mailing their family physician, getting in touch with the patients, calling the same to try to follow up on the outcomes. And those outcomes were a primary outcome of fatal or non-fatal radiologically or pathologically proven recurrent symptomatic ICH, a bunch of secondary outcomes, including major bleeding, major vascular events. And this was an intention to treat analysis. Gotcha. Okay. And a burning question on my mind is like, when was the decision made to restart? Was it within a few days or a few weeks of the ICH? Yeah, very good question. So the median time after ICH to study enrollment was actually 76 days. So this was about two and a half months after the event. These were not kind of acute or even subacute decision points. Huh. Okay, interesting. Um, what did the patients look like who made it in the study? So they had 537 patients. The median age was 76, 67% were male. And as mentioned, the median time after ICH was about 76 days. After some of their exclusion criteria, there were 268 patients assigned to start antiplatelet therapy and 269 that were told to avoid antiplatelet therapy. Uh, the median follow-up was three years. Adherence to the randomized arm was about 80% or higher at each of the years to year four. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. And main results here? 
Yeah, not not too bad from like a, an adherence perspective. So 22 of the 268 patients or 8.2% in the antiplatelet group had recurrent ICH. This was compared to 25 of 268 or 9.3% in the avoid antiplatelet group. So this was a hazard ratio of 0.87 with confidence intervals of 0.49 to 1.55. So no major signal for more events in the antiplatelet group. At the time of recurrent ICH event, Three of the 22 patients, however, in the assigned to take were not actually taking their antiplatelet, and six of the 25 in the do not take were actually taking, you know, aspirin, Plavix, whatever. They also identified that there were fewer major vascular events occurring after allocation to start antiplatelet therapy treatment in years one, two, and three. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so what are some limitations here? You know, this was a fairly small study. Uh, of course, it wasn't placebo-controlled, but the outcomes were fairly objective and blinded adjudication for the same. Okay. Yeah, it's, you're right. You know, I mean, it's small, not placebo-controlled, but still, like, this is as good as we're going to get, I think, from an evidence standpoint. So what's a take-home point for you? Yeah, well, really, they were able to show that there was no clear increased risk in recurrent ICH after restarting antiplatelet therapy. And similarly, there was a signal for fewer vascular events in those who continued their antiplatelet medication. All right. So practice changing for you? I mean, I think it gives me a lot of reassurance that, you know, not within the acute time window. Again, we still don't know what to do then. But, you know, after a good two and a half months or so, if patients have high cardiovascular risk profiles, then it is important to consider restarting their antiplatelet therapy following their ICH. I agree. Yeah, I, I sort of see this as like, it might not help me on their current admission for ICH, but maybe if I'm seeing them months down the line or seeing them in hospital months down the line for something else, that this is definitely, I don't know, the best evidence I've seen so far to guide decision making. Yeah, it might be one of those patients who, you know, now they've come in with a heart failure exacerbation and you're doing their med rec and you realize, oh, actually, you know, they had stopped their aspirin three months ago because of the ICH. Maybe now is the time to chat with the patient or their, you know, substitute decision maker about restarting that medication for protection benefits. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely buy that. And I guess it also provides the opportunity to ask the question, you know, did they even need the antiplatelet in the first case? And also like, why did they get the ICH in the first place? And is that underlying reason removed? So either way, a very cool article and one I was not aware of. Yeah, you know, and just along that point, there is kind of speculation, very much like just a hypothesis considering there's no proof here. But the question is that maybe are the bleeds related to an arterial event? And so the aspirin having its kind of benefits from an arterial perspective for clotting, maybe that's the protective mechanism, which is then leading to a signal for fewer actual bleeding events as well, but, you know, not confirmed. Cool. All right. Well, um, next up, I'm going to talk uh, about the SIMBAD study, a uh, study of mirtazapine for agitated behaviors in dementia a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial published a few months ago in The Lancet. Oh, it's nice to see a randomized controlled trial trying to get at this clinical question, but what was the research question here? So for patients with dementia, can mirtazapine reduce their risk of agitation? Okay, why did you think this was important? Well, you know, sadly on GIM, I think we've all had experiences caring for patients with dementia and who have behavioral symptoms related to their dementia. It's distressing for the patient, their family, and the healthcare team. And sometimes I struggle with, what can we do here? 
right? Like short of discharge them home, maybe that's the best thing we can do. Like what can we actually do for their behaviors apart from prescribing them some antipsychotic that might increase their risk of death? So I think that's why this is so important for me. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's like really, you feel very helpless when you have this super agitated, distressed patient who's like pulling out their lines or whatever, or risk of hurting themselves or the nursing team or the physicians, whatever. And, and yeah, like what can we do? You, you do feel helpless. Anyways, what was the design here? So double-blind placebo-controlled trial in uh, 26 UK clinical centers, their target dose was 45 milligrams of mirtazapine per day which is a massive dose, inclusion criteria that they had probable or possible Alzheimer's um, disease. They had agitation that was unresponsive to non-drug treatment and an elevated score on an um, agitation inventory score called the CMAI score, something that I hadn't heard of before this, but it's very commonly used. Uh, exclusion criteria, individuals at increased risk of suicide, second degree AV block, if they are on a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, or if they're already taking an antidepressant or antipsychotic. And the primary outcome was a reduction in that agitation score 12 weeks uh, later. And I should note up front that a six point reduction is generally felt to be clinically significant. Okay. Maybe can you just remind me like, cause I don't, what's like a reasonable mirtazapine dose as well? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when I'm using it in the inpatient setting, it's my go-to antidepressant for older adults, especially if they're having difficulty sleeping or really poor appetite. So I usually start them at like seven and a half milligrams once a day. And after a couple of weeks, I would maybe double the dose thereafter. So 45 milligrams of mirtazamine, I've never seen a dose that high, but I'm not a psychiatrist. So maybe for a psychiatrist, they're like, oh yeah, no big deal. Okay. Yeah. So, so big dosing. Anyways, what do the patients look like? So um, 800 were assessed uh, for the trial and 204 were randomized. 75% were women. Average age was 83. 50% were living in a long-term care home. And the average mini mental, the MMSE was 14 out of 30, which is you know, showing pretty bad dementia. Okay. So what did they find? Did it work? Yeah. So talking about feeling helpless. So no difference in this uh, you know, agitation scale, a similar rate of adverse events in the two arms. And this isn't good, more deaths in the mirtazapine group compared to the placebo group. We're talking, you know, like seven in the mirtazapine group versus one in the placebo group. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's not very good. Um, so what were the limitations here? So this was a small study. This was a soft endpoint. But having said all of these things, like this would, I guess, bias to finding a benefit and, and they didn't. So those are some of the main limitations. And we have a sense of what a clinically meaningful reduction in this score is of six some odd points. And that's good to know, because when you actually look at the figure two that shows us the reduction in the scores, they go from like a score of you know 70 some odd to a score of almost 60. So you're seeing a clinically significant reduction, but you're seeing an identical drop in the placebo group as you are in the mirtazapine group. Hmm. Makes you wonder, should we maybe just be like given placebo and avoiding all those kind of adverse events with the death? Anyways, what's the take home point here? No, seriously, like the take home point is to probably get some funding, get a sugar pill, come up with a cool name for it, run a trial and compare that sugar pill to like literally doing nothing. If that works, 
hey, let's start prescribing said sugar pill and, you know, help patients and also help our debt. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> is this going to change your practice? Yeah, it is. Uh, like, I'm not going to use vertazapine. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it wasn't something I was using for agitation. It is something that I do find very helpful for, for older adults who have depression, but it sh certainly should not be used off-label for individuals who have, you know, aggressive behaviors and they have dementia. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I mean, it makes you wonder too, though, like what, how much of this is because of these whopping doses that they were using compared to what might be more of a, you know, go low, go slow kind of dose approach. Uh, really hard to speculate unless they interpreted that in their analysis. Yeah, no, totally. Like maybe, so maybe mirtazabine doesn't work, but mirtazabine 45 milligrams is going to kill. So clearly if 45 milligrams doesn't work to reduce agitation, Probably neither is a lower dose, but clearly a lower dose would be safer. I mean, this makes me think, and it dovetails in with my good stuff, it makes me think a lot about the placebo effect. And it makes me think a lot about how we think of the placebo effect from a research standpoint, like almost as like a nuisance in, in the sense that you want to see if your drug works. Of course, that's a goal for it to help people. But if a placebo shows an impressive reduction, that doesn't necessarily mean your drug doesn't work. Instead, <laughs> instead, it might mean that the key is the act of giving something and the behaviors related to it. Uh, and of course, in this scenario, it would be an atrocious idea to be using mirtazapine because of this potential safety concern. Uh, but anyway, the sort of Canadian expert in this area is my good friend, Matt Burke. And I also realized he's ranked the top 10 Canadian neurologists to follow on Twitter. So, so there you go, Burka, well done. And anyway, he's done a lot in this space and thought a lot about, you know, maybe these placebo effects are actually something that we shouldn't think of as a nuisance and instead might potentially be a therapeutic strategy for some patients with certain conditions. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It's pretty incredible to see his career take off. And yeah, good on him for being one of the top ones to follow. I, I already follow, so uh, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think my claim will be that I'll be able to say I, I knew him and in his Wikipedia page, maybe I'll get an asterisk like, uh, <laughs> and Mike knew him. <laughs> yeah, and Mike knew him. I wonder if Mike will be the uh, author for that factoid, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, those will be lonely days if I am the author. But anyway, what's your good stuff? Um, my good stuff is a throwback to those childhood dreams of wanting to be an astronaut. Roberta Bondar, who is a very famous Canadian as the first female Canadian astronaut, also the world's first neurologist in space. Uh, just a nice article uh, on the CBC um, of her reflecting on her kind of trip to space 30 years ago and what that meant to her and uh, where her career has gone since. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll have to give that uh, a listen. I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> anyway, John... All the best in Calgary, and we'll chat again soon. Yeah, talk to you soon, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.